you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 12. Nathan so kindly uh, read the text for us. As we talked about the service earlier in the week, he felt like um, setting up for that beautiful anthem, it would be nice to have it between the reading of the text and the sermon. And totally agree as we're preparing our hearts for Easter. Um, as you're opening there, let me mention a couple of things. It's not too late to invite someone to come with you. We have plenty of invitations around the church, and I do hope to echo what Nathan said earlier. I do hope you'll make plans to be here uh, for our Monday Thursday service at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. And so darkness uh, will have fallen by then, and we'll be able to celebrate uh, the Lord's death and His the Lord's Supper together, even as we feel the weight of the cross and the impending cross. I, I would encourage you, if you if you can, make plans to be here Thursday, uh, Thursday night. Well, if you have your Bibles open there to John twelve, though we've read the whole text, I want to highlight just a few of these verses one more time. So, if you would please uh, stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We're going to look at verses 31, 32, and 33. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people myself and he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die let's pray together oh lord our god would you open our hearts and minds today to receive your word and god i pray we would be changed by it it's in jesus name we pray amen you may be seated i love the thought of the first palm sunday there was such a picture there on that first Palm Sunday of the world as it should be. The, the people there even, I think, got a taste and a glimpse of the world as it should be. In fact, in this very chapter, John chapter 12, if you back up several verses, you'll see John's depiction of the triumphal entry. God's people, though dominated and oppressed by the Roman Empire, nonetheless welcomed their Messiah into Jerusalem. And as he came into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was fulfilling Scripture after Scripture. As he entered in, and as he came in, they were shouting out to him, Oh God, save us! Hosanna! They were waving palm branches, signs of victory, Glory, And they would quote the Bible as he was coming in, quoting the very Word of God which spoke creation into existence and which ordered creation in which they knew should govern all the, the face of the earth. And they knew that this Messiah was coming in to make things right for them. And so they would cry out and they would sing from the Psalms, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What glory! What a picture of God's broken world being set right. And yet the week turns 
a different direction, doesn't it? I don't know if there's a place in Scripture that's much more beautiful and yet which is loaded with more cruel irony than the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in a mere five days, you're thinking, even now, checking your calendar perhaps this morning, thinking about what do we have Thursday night so we can be here, so we can be here for Monday, Thursday. In that short amount of time, from now till Friday, Thursday night, the shouts turn from God save us. The, the shouts turn from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. No more are the cries Hosanna, but it transitions, doesn't it? Crucify Him, the people will say. Crucify Him, His brothers and sisters in the flesh, not His biological, but His kinsmen will say. And even in the midst of the glory of the triumphal entry, the glory of Palm Sunday, Jesus is already preparing His disciples to see and to know and to understand where His true glory resides. The Jewish people are praising Him. We learn and later in a little bit in chapter 12 here that Gentiles are beginning to inquire about Him and want to know, sir, we would see Jesus and all around Jesus is preparing them all for his death. When the disciples come and say, there are some who want to see you, what does Jesus say? Though a kernel of wheat fall in the ground and die. He's preparing them for his death. This morning, my friends, the greatest story ever told brings us to God's rescue mission. It, it brings us to God's plan in its fullest fruition this plan which began when he spoke to Eve that one day one of her descendants a seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent when he called out to Abram there in Ur of the Chaldeans calling him out to a land which would be flowing with milk and honey when God began this process of redeeming the world it has now come to full fruition in the person and work of his son Jesus Christ Jesus came into the world to rescue sinners. And here we turn our attention today to God's rescue mission for broken sinners in a broken world. I want to show you three truths this morning about Christ's redemptive work through the cross. What Jesus was doing to redeem us through the cross. If you're keeping score, the, the sort of acts of the play of God's work in the world begin at creation and they move to the fall, and now we're looking at God's redemptive work, redemption, creation, fall, redemption. And we're focused this morning on the redemptive work that God has done through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to show you three truths this morning about what God has done for us through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing I hope you'll do today. It's this. I hope you'll behold the glory of the cross. I hope you'll behold the glory of the cross. It seems like Jesus should be on high times, doesn't it? People are praising Him. People are shouting out things. In fact, if I'm the disciples, I'm starting to think, finally, people are starting to get it. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and it caused a real hullabaloo here in Jerusalem as He entered in. 
People had heard about his works. Even Gentiles had begun hearing of his works. And I'm sure if I were one of the disciples, I would be like, finally, the PR department has figured out how to handle this. People are starting to pick up on what's going on. People are starting to figure out who he is. And so it might have been shocking. It might have been difficult for them to hear what Jesus said in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. Maybe they thought there was a war coming. It was about time to fight, so maybe that's why Jesus is troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus is here setting up his disciples, and John, in quoting Jesus in this way, is setting you, the reader, up to hear and to understand what it is that Jesus sees as his purpose. And part of his purpose and what he's about to do, this hour which troubles his soul and troubles his spirit, he recognizes he desires that his Father would glorify his name. And he says it, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, a voice Jesus will tell them came for their sake, but not for his. I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Maybe it tells us something of the spiritual temperature of the, the people who are gathered around the Lord that none of them believe or see that this is the voice of God. Some think it's thunder. Others think it's the voice of an angel. Many of us sometimes desire for God to speak to us audibly, and there's a big presumption there. That if God spoke, you'd believe it. You have a Bible already. You don't always believe it. You might not even recognize God's voice if you heard it. These folks certainly didn't. But here we see Jesus troubled. And he asks God to glorify his name. And he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You see here a little bit of the glory of the weight of the cross. We talk about this on our staff a lot. We talk about the weight of the cross because we think through and as Nathan thinks through and prays through this season and in particular this Sunday in our Maundy Thursday service, we start to think through and pray through how we can help you experience at some level the weight of judgment at the cross. Here we see a little bit of a glimpse, a foreshadowing, a foretelling of what Jesus was about to bear. There's a glory in what Jesus is about to bear. We recognize the weight of darkness in the world, don't we? There's a heaviness to the way things are. And I don't know if, if, if you found yourself wasting away, as the psalmist might say, on your pillow at night with your pillow soaked with tears, or if nothing else, just the weight of the worries of the world on your heart, on your shoulders, you're thinking about all the things that are going on. I found myself so deeply troubled. And then I don't know if you've ever learned about some horrible scandal or some terrible sin and the weight you feel there. Just the weight of darkness in the world is almost too much to bear at times. We can see the way. If you read some of the statistics right now about the way that the last two years have broken so many people. Just the high high, high statistics on things like loneliness and sadness and depression and 
even suicide, terrible things. The, the brokenness of the last two years has weighed on us in tremendous ways, not only as individuals, but just the whole of our society and our world feels the weight of it. And here we see the way that Jesus' soul is troubled because all of the darkness of the world is about to touch down on him. In fact, not only will the darkness of sin, the Bible says he became sin who knew no sin. Not only will he receive the sins of the world into himself, but on top of all that, he will be forsaken by his Father as his wrath is poured out on him. There's a glory of the weight of the cross that we see brewing in what Jesus is saying. And yet, nonetheless, God's glory is there in the cross. God's glory is there in the cross. In the cross, we see the Father's will and God's will, not only the Father's will, not only the Son's will, not only the Spirit's will, but the will of the whole Godhead coming to bear in the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that God was in total unity in, and we see the glory of the fact that Jesus is going to the cross, and the Father then speaks out audibly so that all can hear, though all didn't understand. And says so beautifully, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Putting his signature on what's about to happen. And yet the people didn't understand. The crowd stood there and heard it. And they said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. As we behold the glory of the cross, we have to recognize there's a veiled glory to the cross. Most of us want to live on Palm Sunday, but not on Good Friday. Most of us like the idea of dwelling on Palm Sunday. We love the hosannas and the little children sing and they wave their palm branches. And I love it too. I love it. We love the idea of as Jesus comes in, people recognizing who he is. And, and everybody, like the disciples, are kind of like, yeah, finally, finally, we're getting what we're due. But then when all the death business starts, starts up, all the cross talk starts up, you see people start, by the end of the week, everybody's singing a different tune. Every disciple, every follower, every person, everybody's singing a different tune by the time it's time for Jesus to be nailed the cross the people misunderstood the glory of God they didn't even understand his voice and and Jesus says that the father provided this audible declaration to them for their sake and not for his he knew what God was up to but they didn't they missed it they didn't see it so often my friends we find ourselves searching for glory outside the cross there's a difference in man's glory and God's glory, isn't there? I mean, there's a difference in God's glory and man's glory. Man's glory is apparent. Man's glory is obvious. If you see a great person, a good and great person, it usually doesn't take long for you to get some clue that that's what they at least think they are. And yet here we see the way the glory of the cross is veiled. So often we find ourselves searching for glory outside the cross. 
we find ourselves searching for something besides weakness, something besides the gospel to provide us with glory. And yet, my friends, if you are a believer, you recognize that the glory of God is displayed most clearly in the cross of His Son. It's not in worldly glory. glory. It's not in the accolades of man. The accolades of man are fickle. Don't you see it here? How quickly they begin to yell, crucify Him. No, my friends, we must be the sort of people who behold the glory of the cross, recognizing that if we were to see Jesus on the cross, if we were to actually see with our eyes the gruesomeness and the grotesqueness and the brutality of what the Lord Jesus Christ suffered, we would likely vomit at the sight of how awful it would be. And yet there we say in that very moment resides the very glory of God being displayed to the world. As people walked by, they mocked and scoffed. Some spat on Him. It's how sickening the sight was. And yet what we recognize, it's in that weakness, it's even in that gore, in the shedding of blood, that the glory of God was being revealed. And when you start to think about the whole storyline of the Bible, it starts to make sense why it had to be that way. Because when Adam gave the world over to Satan and subjected the world to futility through sin, we recognize that for God to be just and for God to be who God is, He had to do something to win it back. And though His glory was revealed through creation at the beginning, now because of sin, His glory must be revealed through the cross. Do you see it? Do you see God's glory? And second of all, not only do you see the glory of the cross, or behold the glory of the cross, second of all, would you embrace the victory of the cross? Would you embrace the victory of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 31, Jesus says, After His Father spoke, this word of glory, he says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, the ruler of this world, be cast out. And I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, verse 33, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is beginning to teach about his own death and and about how he's going to win, how he's going to be victorious. And people don't understand what what he's saying. (laughs) Does not compute, right? You know, I think think they're saying now, you keep saying this, but I don't think it means what you think it means. Because you keep saying stuff like, you're going to be lifted up. And they kind of get what he's saying. He's going to be killed. He's going to die. So what do they say? Verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? In other words, now if you, it it can't be the Messiah. Whoever this Son of Man is, it needs to be lifted up. The the Christ lands forever. So it's just people are confused. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to understand this because they're saying, Now listen, we've been yelling out down here for God to save us. God save us. Here comes the King of Israel. We're going to look awful stupid if you want to have crucified at the end of this thing. 
Now, that's not the Bible. The Bible we read says that Christ remains forever. What's the deal here? Here we see the way that the victory of the cross looks different than the sort of victory most of us would expect. We don't like to win by losing in this culture. You know, nothing makes us angrier than the idea of a moral victory. You know, it just ticks us off. I don't want a moral victory, do you? I want like a real victory. All right, well, I'm sure we're going to grow through that loss. I don't want to grow. I want to win. Right? Nobody, got, nobody missed the cut at the Masters this weekend and says, well, praise be to God, you know, I'm just going to grow through this. Learn-. No, we don't want to say that. Even though much of it's true. We don't want to hear that. We want to win. We like winners. That's what we're like here in America. Much like those to whom Jesus is speaking. The victory of the cross looks different than the victory any of us would anticipate. You see here the way that Jesus is declaring that he will soon be victorious over sin, death, and the devil. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus says. Now for us, we understand rightfully judgment to be a sort of scary thing. Um, For those of us who are believers, we ought not to be too scared of judgment. But when we think about judgment, we think about Jesus returning and Jesus making all things right and and, and we, we think about facing judgment for our own sin. And yet, as believers, we also need to recognize that judgment is also a good thing. Because when Jesus judges the world, He is going to cleanse the world from evil. It's part of the means by which Jesus is going to make all things right. It's why families long for judgment. They long for justice when something's been done to someone they love, when they've been murdered. There is a sense of closure when judgment is received. It's because there's something being made right. That's part of what Jesus is saying. And so at the fall, we recognize that sin, death, and the devil seem to have the final word because humans who were not going to die were then going to die. And humans who were meant to live perfectly before God were now sinning. And Adam, who was supposed to rule and reign over the earth under God, submitted himself to Satan and handed that rulership and authority over to Satan so that now he was the ruler of the world. Jesus is delivering people who trust him from this world. That is this fallen world. Now the ruler of this world, the devil himself, is being cast out. Jesus is already on another plane of victory from those who have already been celebrating his victory. They're celebrating and singing, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, welcome the King of Israel. He's going to set us free from our Roman overlords, and he's going to be another David who brings the kingdom back right here to Israel, where Jesus is already saying, your battle is much too small, your plane of reference is much too small. I am coming to judge not Rome and not just Caesar, but I am coming to judge this world and to expel Satan himself from the place where he thinks he reigns. That's what Jesus is doing at the cross. And there's the victory of Christ over sin, death, and the devil through the cross. But also we recognize this victory had to come through Jesus tasting death on our behalf. That's what he says in verse 32. He'd already made a reference in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, bears much fruit. 
And again, reorienting his followers away from a worldly glory and toward a glory of the cross. What does he say here? And I, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John makes it clear, if you didn't know already, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus had to taste death on our behalf because in order for God to be just, in order to God to be just, for God to be just, a man had to suffer the penalty for what man had done. And yet we couldn't suffer the penalty ourselves. There's not enough in us. There's, we're not sufficient to do what needed to be done. Only God could pay for our sins. And so Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, fully God and fully man, came to the world. He was lifted up from the earth on a Roman cross and He tasted death for us all so that we might live through him. That is how Jesus was victorious. He didn't come merely to conquer. He came and conquered through, by tasting, by experiencing, by receiving the punishment we deserved. Do you see the beauty of the victory of the cross? And of course, again, those around him misunderstand victory. They say, wait, 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 wait. It's our understanding that the Messiah is supposed to last forever. He's supposed to be here forever. He's not supposed to go anywhere. So what's all this death talk about? What's all this being lifted up talk about? Much like us today, they're thinking about worldly success. They're thinking about worldly glory. They're thinking about a worldly victory. You're supposed to win. You're supposed to sit on the throne and never leave it. But how do you win through the gospel? How do you win if you're Jesus? How do you bring back a broken world from death? You do it through the cross. The only way Jesus could win, the only way Jesus could have victory, the only way that Jesus could sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, the only way that Jesus could deliver a broken world back unto God is through the cross. And as Christians, we have to always realize that God's success and God's victory always looks different than the way success and victory looks in the world. Who would ever thought that being broken and killed on a cross would be the way that God would win forever? Again, the people are missing the big picture of what God is doing. They ask this question, and Jesus doesn't answer. <laughs> I, love, I love Jesus because He's so gracious to us. Because even when we ask dumb questions, He still gives us good answers. Even when we ask the wrong question, Jesus still gives us the right answer. He did it to the Gentiles just earlier. They came wanting to see Him. He said, if you really want to see Me, you need to see Me after My resurrection. If the Gentiles want to come, they need to come through the cross. And now again, He's saying to those, presumably of Israel, who are hardening their hearts in the process of hardening their hearts to the cross, who, who are hardening their hearts to what God is really doing. He gives them a word when they try to get in a quibble with Him about the theology of the 
predictions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Instead, Jesus gives them the answer they so desperately need. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I suppose Jesus knows for those Jews there who are with him in his presence right then that the best opportunity they had to really trust and believe him, their best opportunity they had to believe the gospel after his resurrection was to believe him before. And he's pressing on them, walk in the light while the light is here. There's something troubling right there at the end of verse 36. When Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. I think that's a, a sign there of the way that God's people had rejected their Messiah and ultimately would reject their Messiah in handing him over to Rome to be crucified. We see a word here. Believe in the light and the darkness. That's our last point this morning. Believe in the light and the darkness. We live in a dark world, my friends. We live in a dark world. But Jesus is the light that has come into the world. This world's so dark, so heavy. It's so difficult to live in this world. This world was dark then, wasn't it? It was so dark because even the people of God couldn't see Jesus for who He was. This world was so dark because the nations of the world couldn't see or interpret the glory of Christ in the cross. It was so dark because people were so blinded by their own sin that they couldn't see the remedy that their sin required. They just wanted things to go Back to business as usual. They just wanted to go straight back to Eden. They just thought maybe we could just have Jesus come and, and beat Rome and all our problems would be solved. They didn't realize how fundamentally broken everything was. That's what sin does. It blinds us even to the own remedy for our sins. It was so dark. Because in just a few days from when Jesus said this, the darkness will seem to have overtaken the light himself. Think about it. Consider it. How dark it is. And how badly we need the light. But I want you to see the opportunity of the cross of Christ. What it provides for you. Do you see what Jesus says to these people? Stubborn people. Unbelieving people. People who perhaps some in this very crowd will later yell, crucify him. I don't know. Disciples who will betray him. What does Jesus say to them? What opportunity does he offer them? What does he say that his work will provide for them? While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We're not sons of light, are we? We're not daughters of light, are we? By our nature? No. No. You were born in the darkness, weren't you? You weren't born saved. You, you, no, nobody had to teach you how to sin. 
No, we were all born dark. We, we were all born with darkness in our hearts. We were all born into a sinful flesh, into a sinful world. And yet Jesus says, if you will see the light and believe in the light, you can be sons of light. This is the grace that God offers you through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you this morning see the glory of Jesus? Do you see him? Do you see him entering his kingdom? Do you see him being anointed as king? As you see him passing by, can you yell out, Hosanna, God save us. Can you say, O King of Israel, will you come? Blessed is the name who come, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see him? Do you see him demonstrating that he is both Lord and Christ and King? Do you see him? It's not him on a donkey. It's not him in his triumphal entry. Cry out Hosanna to the one you see in his shame-filled walk to Golgotha. Cry out, God save us, to the one you see bearing his own instrument of torture there to the place of the skull, the one going outside the camp. That is the one who was made worthy of all glory and laud and honor and praise. That is the one who, because of his suffering, was made worthy to receive the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and in earth. That is our God. That is our King. Do you see the glory of Christ? Do you see what He's done for you? Can you see the beauty and the glory and the worth and the honor of Christ because He suffered at the cross? Oh, I hope you do. I hope you see it. And I hope you'll respond this morning to what He's done for you. I want to offer an invitation today. You've never trusted Jesus for the first time. I believe if you turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, you will be saved. I believe it with all my heart. This morning, I pray you'll do that. If you need someone to talk to, I'd love to lead you to Jesus even even today. I would love it. Second of all, you may be a believer who just needs to pray. This altar's open for you or you can pray right where you are. You need someone to talk to, though. I'll be right down front waiting on you. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. What a joy it would be to, be, to welcome you today, talk to you about what it means to be a member of First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I'd like to invite you to come. Let's pray together.